You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Ben's going to be continuing to preach in Song of Songs tonight in the 7th chapter, verse 10 through 8, 4. I don't get a chance to find that on your phone or your Bible. Can you please stand for the reading of the word? My beloved, and his desires for me, the bride gives her love. Come, my beloved, let us go out to the fields and all to the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you. Oh, my beloved, longing for her beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, nursing my mother's breast. If I find you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I will lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, Good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Rob said, we're uh, looking at the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon. And we've been looking at it for four weeks now. And uh, I said last week that um, Rabbi Akiva was his name. Uh, he, he was a first century rabbi who said that um, of all the books of the Bible, um, the Song of Songs, and I'll call it that, is what he called the Holy of Holies. Of scripture, And if you know the architecture of the temple, the Holy of Holies was the most holy place where no human could go behind the curtain where the ark was. It was, it was so filled with the holiness and glory of God. And to this rabbi, uh, the Song of Solomon is the epicenter of the revelation of God. Uh, not only that, um, the great uh, preacher Bernard of Clairvaux preached... 38 sermons on just the first two verses of the Song of Songs. It had, there were more commentaries and uh, more sermons preached on the Song of Songs 
than any other book of the Bible except for two, uh, the Psalms and Genesis in the Middle Ages. Uh, And if you think about the people who were preaching those sermons and hearing those sermons, they're mostly uh, people who are celibate. They're monks. There are nuns. They're people who are single. They're intentionally single because Paul said, the apostle, that it is good to be single. Uh, We've kind of lost that in our day, but uh, there is a place, there's a calling on singleness. So how is it that these people that have dedicated themselves to a life without having sex are so fascinated by the Song of Solomon? Song of Songs. And I think the answer to that is because if you read the Song of Songs as it is meant to be read, it's very clear that it is a depiction of God's passion for us. And I know, especially as men, that's hard. It's hard for us to understand a a romantic longing of God for us. Um, But I think you can get your imagination there. I think we can all get our imaginations there. Think of a person who is just so deeply in love with you and so beautiful and so passionate about pursuing you uh, that it's, uh, it's, like you, it's like you've drunk a, a love potion. It's like Cupid has shot you with one of his arrows. I would say the Song of Songs is like putting like a main line. You know, you can put an IV in someone and it goes right to the heart. It's called a main line. It's like mainlining, you know, medicine, a powerful drug, a love potion right into your heart. This is, that's why it's so popular. Is because it is a depiction, and I really believe the author meant this. The author's primary meaning of the Song of Songs is a depiction of God's love for Israel. And if you read Isaiah chapter 32, or if you read Isaiah chapter 62, or it's all over the prophets. The prophet Hosea is filled with it. Uh, you see over and over the language of the psalm is picked up. It's echoing throughout the Old Testament. So I'm not making this up. Uh, the Song of Songs really was written by some genius uh, potentially a, a, a mixture of people. Um, and uh, it's mostly written from the female's point of view, but it is a depiction of the perfect romance. It, it brings us back to the Garden of Eden, of the romance between Adam and Eve. And I know it's hard for a lot of people because it, it almost is so beautiful that it's painful. Because you say to yourself, well, that's not what my relationship's like. Or I'm not even in a relationship, or my marriage is certainly not that way. They call this the second use of the law, if you know Reformed theology at all, that the law of God has several uses, but the second one, the most important one, is that it shows you how far you are from keeping it. And really, the Song of Songs just exposes us in that way. Um, And and I want to look at this evening the way that the Song of Songs is a, a depiction of God's desire. And in many ways, that's the way to think about the emptiness that it can make you feel. If you think about how lacking your life is in romance or true love, uh, this is the, the solution, is that the Song of Songs is a presentation of God's passion, perfect relationship with you. And he is making you into a creature that can be in perfect relationship with him. So I want to look at the divine desire, which then redeems all human desire. And human desire can only become healthy Human sexual desire can only be healthy insofar as one has received the passion of God for oneself. So those two things, divine and then human. So the context for this passage, right before this passage, chapter um, verse 8 and 9. So we started here in verse 10. Well, verse 8 and 9 is the two of them flirting. They're often flirting. They often talk to one another. That is an element of uh, a romantic relationship that if there's no uh, conversation, if there's no teasing and laughing and being playful and silly and joking, there's something really wrong. There's something off. 
If that's gone away, there's something off. That's like the canary in the coal mine. You know, if, that, if, the, if, if that's off, then watch out. Uh, because these two are constantly flirting and teasing. Um, he says to her, your mouth is like the best of wine. In other words, to taste your lips is like tasting fine wine. And then she completes the sentence for him, smiling. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. So that's just a depiction of the, uh, the genius of the writer of the Song of Songs. Um, this beautiful flirtation between the man and the woman. Uh, your mouth is like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. And then after that, she kind of turns to the camera. I think of like the office when they'll turn to the camera and they'll interrupt the action. And she says, um, she just suddenly tells us as an audience, um, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's and his desire for me. And this is kind of like the ode to joy, you know, of the Song of Songs. If you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, the essence of the symphony is joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Uh, God of glory, Lord of love. It's very famous. And that is the, the central melodic line of the symphony. Well, in the Song of Songs, the central melodic line is, uh, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's, that's the essence of a, a relationship between a man and a woman or between God and his people. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And in this case, she kind of cuts that off and says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, this word desire is really, really important. It is uh, highly contested among commentators. Um, and what it means is not entirely clear. And I'm not saying I know exactly what it means, but I do know this. It is used three times in the Bible, the word desire. The first time is when God puts a curse on Adam and Eve's relationship with one another because they disobeyed him. Because they uh, basically plummeted humanity uh, into a situation of alienation from God. And when they did that, a curse naturally occurred on their relationship where God says to the woman, your desire will be for him and he will dominate you. I mean, and how true is that to the history of the relationship between men and women? Uh, Your desire will be for him and he will dominate you. And the next time that word is used, desire, it's also used in a negative way. And it says in the next chapter of scripture, that was chapter three, chapter four God is saying to Cain, who has just murdered his brother Abel, he said, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. So it's a kind of a desire to consume and to own and control and use and possess, completely possess and like just it's mine. And now the same word is used here. I am my beloved and his desire is for me, but now it's been redeemed. So what has fallen in Genesis three and four is now redeemed here, the desire. Uh, And in chapter eight, verse six, uh, it says, loves flames are flames of fire, flames that come from Yahweh. And so the redeemed desire is the desire of Yahweh. It is a desire in, located in the very heart of God. Uh, a desire that makes the greatest romance uh, look like nothing in comparison. So think about your, it might help to kind of put your mind in the, you know, a great romance that you love, The Notebook or something like that, a Nicholas Sparks novel, um, Walk to Remember, um, Romeo and Juliet is an obvious one, uh, Wesley and Buttercup, I, I love personally in the 
Princess Bride, but just think about a great romance. Maybe it's your romance. Maybe you're in it right now. If you are, praise God. Um, but those are like mere, those are like nuclear, you know, of solar panels. I'm sorry, not nuclear. Those are like solar panels to the nuclear power of the sun. Like the, the nuclear core of the sun is the, is the fire of Yahweh. And our little tiny flicker of that, you know, of the true love that you see in the Princess Bride uh, is nothing in comparison uh, to the love of God, the fire of God. Um, again, the, the great formula of the Old Testament of covenant and relationship is I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You see that in chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. You see it in chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and he is mine. This is what it means to be in a romantic relationship. And so in the Old Testament, here's the amazing thing, is that God uses that same formula as his favorite expression for his relationship with his people. Okay, so in, in Exodus six seventeen, listen to the language. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You can kind of think of that as like dating, where he's, he takes Israel for himself and he takes her into the wilderness. He's like dating her. And then much later in the prophet Ezekiel, after Israel and Yahweh have been dating, uh, there's kind of an engagement period where he says in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit in you and I will make you love me. Because they didn't love him. And you'll be my people and I will be your God. So he's saying one day to come, I will put my spirit in you and I will make you love me as much as I love you. And I will be your God and you'll be my people. And you come to the New Testament and there's actually the betrothal. There's actually the wedding where Christ comes. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, uh, he says, I will walk among my people and I will be their God and they will be my people. And now it's like the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that the church, we as a church are kind of actually beginning to know how to love God the way he loves us. A little bit, just a little bit. And our growth in Christ is learning more and more how to love God the way he loves us. But then you get to the consummation, the actual act of the two becoming one. And that's in Revelation, the very last part of the Bible, Revelation 21.3. And now it says the dwelling place of God is with humanity And they will be his people, and he himself will be their God. And now it is actually the case that we as the church, we as the people of God, we are now as much in love with God, and we love him actively as much as he loves us and actively pursues us. So that is my thesis here, is that, uh, as Peter Crave said, uh, Christianity is not a hypothesis, it is a proposal. Uh, Thank you to Lolly Glenn for giving me that quote. But I love that idea that... Faith is not a, a, a set of ideas. It is God proposing to you, I will make you my beloved, and I want to be yours. I want to be in covenant with you. Ellen Davis uh, supposedly has written the best commentary on the Song of Songs. I did not read it, but from what I've read, I, 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 I would agree with that from the quotes I've seen. But Ellen Davis says this, The Song of Songs depicts God's passionate and troubled relationship with humanity. And it points to the healing of our deepest wounds. The reversal of the primordial exile from Eden and a return to the Garden of God. So when you're reading the Song of Songs, it's like you're walking with God in the cool of the day to some extent. But that's the point. The song is you've got to get back to the garden. I don't know if you know that Crosby, Stills and Nash song. You've got to get back. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. That's what the Song of Songs is about. It triggers like hopefully it triggers an ancient sacred longing in you for your home. And not only your home, but for your lover. Because you have lost your lover. 
And if, and if you feel dissatisfied with this world, you are right to be that way because you have lost your relationship with your lover and you can only barely begin to feel that even as you read this song. Notice the, uh, the amount of garden imagery throughout the song. It's like a return to the perfect love that we had in the garden. Verse 12 says the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. I kind of imagine them chasing one another, you know, in the cool of the day as the way that Yahweh walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. And they're chasing each other among the vines. Verse 12, let us go early to the vineyards and see the vines having budded. Israel's compared to a vine and a vineyard all the time in the Old Testament. Again, over and over, Israel is like the beloved and Yahweh is like the lover all throughout the Old Testament. It is central to the whole story of Scripture that God is this this groom, that Jesus comes and says, I am the bridegroom, I'm finally here, I've come to wed you, my beloved, my people, my church. So if you're feeling unwanted and undesirable and like you lack romance, whether you're married, dating, or single, it can happen to all of us, um, go into God's creation. That's where he loves to meet with us. Go up to a mountain, go, up to, go to Pilot Mountain, walk around Salem Lake, go outside, just sit there in creation and read some parts of the Song of Thrones, and you think to yourself, that, this is my relationship with God. Phyllis Tribble, I've quoted her many times. Uh, she says, they live in gardens where nature joins in celebrating their oneness. Fruits pleasing to the eye and tongue, living waters replenishing their gardens. Um, again, I, I cannot encourage you enough to read this song and think about your relationship with God. And, and when you hear... The, the man, if, when you hear the, the, the one who is called the lover, that is God speaking to you. That's God speaking to you. So you've got to get that into your life. You know, I saw Paul, Paul McCartney, and uh, he sang, it's my, one of my favorite songs by the Beatles. The Earth, Wind, and Fire covered it. Got to get you into my life. And the point of that song is, you know, I've got to get you and your love into my life, or I'm not going to be complete. Um, and this is, what this, this is what the Song of Songs is all about. I, you've got to get, you've got to inject, you've got to mainline the love of God into your life or else you're going to always be searching for it somewhere else, especially in a human face that will not satisfy you. So that's God's desire for us and that redeems our sexual desires. That's the second point. Um, look at verse three. We've seen this before. This has happened earlier in verse uh, chapter two. But now we're here and it's happening again. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. This is now, now we're talking about human desire. And this is just days before their marriage. They get married in the next chapter. Here's what one commentator said, Trimper Longman. They're lying down. He has slipped his left arm under her head. He cradles her head on his arm and she is moving towards him. So we know what's happening here. And then suddenly, this happened the first time too, suddenly she stops. And uh, last time I preached, a, ch- a child sc- screamed something like, why? Or it was something, some child like, what, what? Why would you do that? But she, you know, in any American romance movie, you would never stop here. This would, this would be the place where it really, you get going. But suddenly she stops. And perhaps in another like office moment where she turns to the camera, she says, I adjure you, dear friends. These are her female friends. Um, unmarried. I adjure you, dear friends. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And, um, you know, that could, be, that could be used like a club to beat you over the head and say you can't have premarital sex. And, 
you know, it, there is there's truth in what in that in that statement, of course. You know, that's that that is the vision for Christianity is that sex is within a covenant between a man and a woman. But the main point I'm, I would say here is that she is able to stop because she she is not desperate. She's not desperate for a man. She is secure in her relationship with God, so secure that she can actually stop. And she is waiting for that desire to be wrapped up in a promise, to be enfolded in a promise, embraced in a promise where she knows that it is self-giving, that sex is, is safe and unselfish and where she's not being used, where she doesn't have to perform. She does not have to um, keep him happy, uh, where um, she is not being test driven. You know, our culture is always like, you've got to make sure you're compatible uh, whether they're good in bed, you know, which is really just a way of saying whether they give me pleasure. That's the way we talk about things in our culture. Um, you, you know, and she is saying, I don't want compatibility. I want a promise. I want an unbreakable promise on the table before I go there. Because that's the only way you know for sure that it is unselfish, that it is about the other, that it is, it's not about making yourself happy. You're not going to be used. I think about an artist, you know, a great artist. Uh, is very disciplined and um, they restrain themselves. They, they, they exercise enormous amounts of patience. They don't just slap paint on a canvas. They, they train their eye carefully over many, many years. They hold the brush perfectly. And she's trying to make perfect art. And she's saying, I want your word that you're not going anywhere, no matter what, no matter how things get, with, how messy things get physically with us, how badly it's going. And I've known couples that as soon as they got married, it was incredibly painful. It was not pleasant. And, um, and yet the, the, the promise was there to keep them together. It contained it. You know, like a nuclear reactor containing this powerful nuclear energy. It was the container that kept it from getting out of hand and becoming unrestrained. I love her restraint in verse 1. I know this is kind of confusing, but almost kind of strange. This is um, verse 1 again. Oh, that you are like a brother. You know, why would you want uh, your partner to be a, like a brother? Well, the, the point is, she's saying, I wish I could walk around town and always be with you and hold your hand and kiss you in public. Because back then, siblings could do that, but lovers could not do that. So if you've read any Jane Austen, you know, it's kind of the same thing there. Like, it's a really big deal if you're holding hands. If, if Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy are holding hands, that's a major, that's like they're engaged, basically. You don't do that kind of thing. And so this is kind of like a Jane Austen heroine. It's like Emma, where she's restraining herself. And therefore, she wants him to be like a brother so she could hold his hand, so she could always be with him. And so what she's saying is, I want more than a dopamine hit. I want something that is like the passion of God for my soul. Ephesians 5 is uh, the, the, the longest teaching in the Bible on how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And in that passage, <clears throat> Paul, thinking about the Song of Songs, no doubt about it, and he, he says to the husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when Aristotle is addressing husbands, he says, Husbands, this is how you control your wives. Okay, so the difference is massive. If you read, you go from Aristotle 300 years earlier to reading the Apostle Paul, and he says, I'm not telling you how to control your wife or rule your wife. I'm telling you, you should lay down your life for your wife. And that's what true romance is. When a man is so willing to give himself up 
that he puts himself in danger, that he takes the hit, that he does whatever it takes to make, give her pleasure, to make her safe. Totally self-giving, totally other-centered, not about myself. Again, this is idealized. This is the way Christ loves the church, but this is what we're called to. And in, in, in verse 27 of Ephesians 5, he says, Christ loved the church so much that he died for her, that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that's a reference back to the spotlessness in the Song of Songs. So what Paul is saying is that when he is speaking about the union between a man and a woman, he's talking about the mystery of Christ, the groom and church, the bride. And that the love that is supposed to be there is entirely giving everything of yourself for the other. And that is what redeems all human sexuality is that kind of love being injected into our relationships, being injected into our marriages, being injected into singleness, God's love for his people. I just thought about a friend um, who in love with a girl since the day he got to campus move in day um, best friends ever since met in the move in line. You know, when they're pulling, they're taking their, their stuff up to their rooms and, uh, didn't say anything, just waited patiently over and over and over while she dated other guys and she'd come back and talk to him and he would listen to all the stories of romantic interests. Meanwhile, there are girls that are trying to date him. He's a really popular guy, really charismatic, winsome, attractive, and all these girls over and over again trying to date him, turns him down every single time. And um, you just, I keep telling him, like, man, what... You know, give up. I mean, this is obviously not working. There's no interest there at all. Uh, move on. There's a ton of other people out there for you. And he's just like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to pray. He's just praying for a romantic miracle. In a way that makes no sense at all. It's inexplicable. The extent to which he pursues her and loves her. Waits patiently for her. And I thought, that's like God's love. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we are people uh, who are extremely fickle. Think about how hard it is for you to love God, how little you love God, how little you want to pray or sing or um, how little you want to read a scripture. I mean, if you're like me, it's very, very hard. And yet God says, I set my affections on her. I want her and I'm going to wait for her and I'm going to pray for a, a, you know, a Hail Mary pass to be caught. I, I will seek my beloveds. I want to walk with her again in the garden. Uh, I love uh, a British pastor named Ed Shaw. He's in the Church of England. He's in Bristol. He's celibate, gay pastor. Um, he's written books about singleness in the church. Look him up. His name's Ed Shaw. One of my favorite podcasts I've told a lot of you about it is called Theology in the Raw. Highly recommend that podcast. Deals a lot with sexuality and race and gender. Preston Sprinkle is the guy who runs it. And uh, he was interviewing Ed Shaw. This is where I first heard about Ed Shaw was this interview. And they're going over how painful it is for Ed Shaw to not experience romance when he's attracted to all these men. And he says, quote, it is incredibly hard for me to restrain my desires. And I don't always entirely succeed. And um, a lot of the interview is Preston Sprinkle just talking to the extent of that difficulty. And Ed Shaw's like, I have a lot of married friends. We go on vacation together. I spend holidays with other single friends. You know, I've tried to build a life where I can... Uh, live as a single person, restraining myself from my desires. 
But in the end of the interview, uh, he gets really bold. And he says to Preston Sprinkle, I'm telling you, I can still flourish. I can flourish as a sexual being and a single person. And he says, when I am blown away by the beauty of a man, how do I process that? This is what Ed Shaw says. How do I process the fact when I look at a man, I'm just blown away by his beauty, and I so want to pursue that. And he says to himself, he says, Ed, the power of those feelings are just a small little pathetic insight into the power of God's love for you, his bride. And one day you will feel all of that. And in the meantime, you can wait. And this is how he concludes the interview. He says, resisting sexual desire is cultivating hope for God. Remember, we love these rascals.